Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Every choice that I make, every vote that I cast, everything that I buy or don't buy is also a contribution. And I felt instinctively that change does start with myself. It doesn't start with blaming other people and thinking someone else is completely guilty of everything and it has nothing to do with me. That's Nora Wilhelm, graduate of the Masters in Social Innovation Programme, social innovator and activist. I spoke to Nora about her work within Systems Change and I asked her why she chose the Masters Programme. But I began the podcast by asking her what led her to the path of activism. I remember when I was 15, 16 years old, I went on exchange to Canada and I spent some time there at a public high school. And I spent lots of time in the library because I love reading. And there was a lecture by uh, Elisabeth Dallaire, who is the ex-wife of the um, general Romeo Dallaire, who's the head of the Blue Helmets during the Rwanda genocide. And she came to the library and told us about what happened, about the genocide, about the history of that. And within the same kind of time frame, I found out about deforestation in the Amazon, about what happens behind closed doors and slaughterhouses. There's just a few of these like very tragic information points that pierced, in a way, the childhood bubble I had grown up in. And I just remember first being very shocked, angry, <laughs> grieving also for the world that I thought we lived in. And from that point onwards, I've been on a quest to make the best possible contribution I can to right those wrongs in a way. Uh, so I've been a youth activist. I was very involved in active citizenship, engaging other young people in democracy, in, in policy building. And over time, I figured that there's not only a problem of representation. So there's not only that we need you know, more women, more non-white people, more younger people, and so on in decision-making spaces, but really there's a problem on a systemic level. There's a problem at the level of the paradigm from which we operate. And so, yeah, over the last seven years, I started focusing more and more on this uh, level of systems change. What would that look like? What does it mean? And how could we possibly collaborate towards it? I just want to go back a moment and ask you about becoming a youth activist because it's it's one thing and it doesn't matter how old you are to be fair it's one thing to know about issues that upset you and you feel desperately saddened by to becoming an activist that is setting out to change the world definitely i i think i may have gone through a phase of being a very difficult teenager in my own way <laughs> very angry at the at the world that in a way also my parents right who were the closest representation to me of of living in a way that at the time I couldn't understand so I think I I had a very naive you know also first reaction of like how does not uh, exactly what you say right everyone who finds out about this I couldn't understand how they don't just dedicate their life to change this was really something I at first I could not make sense of it and it took a while I think to you know, to to sort through those those feelings and those those thoughts. I remember seeing a TED talk from somebody that was about daily leadership. And it was a concept that in every single interaction and in how we meet somebody and how we show up in whether we say thank you to the baker or we don't, or what we choose to buy, how we choose to travel, and all those choices, it's an act of leadership. So there's power and impact in every single choice we make. 
And in a way, I then developed this this new life philosophy in a way for myself that was around that what it's all about is for each of us to do our best, to make our own unique contribution. And if that's being an excellent dad, if that's being a really great boss or a mentor or supporting the local youth or whatever form this takes, um, it's not, yeah, there's not just one template, one way of being a good human and making um, our best possible contribution to the future we want to see. So I think this is how I was able to kind of process it and, and figure out that there's meaning and impact in everything, in the small as much as in the big. And for myself, then kind of really getting all fired up and trying to find all the ways in which I could possibly contribute. And maybe what I need to add to that is that I had, since I was a child, a very strong sense of justice, <laughs> of injustice, like an injustice radar, a strong reaction to it when presented with it, with unfairness, whether it's towards me or towards other people uh, that I was witnessing. And I later learned that there's a correlation between this and having ADHD, which I was just diagnosed with recently. <laughs> so, so yeah, in a way, I think I, I did have some of the, you know, very early seeds with me since, since childhood, whether that's nature or nurture, you know, we can debate and then was kind of able to find my own way to contributing. And I think I was lucky to have both people, you know, who told me, oh no, that's not possible. And you're too young. And who do you think you are? And it's always been done this way. And also the people who said, yeah, go ahead. You know, yes, you're welcome to work with us on this. And whether it was the Red Cross that I knocked on their door, you know, at 15, like, hi, I would like to work with you. <laughs> or whether it was the headmaster of my school at the time, which turned out to be an unexpected ally as well. Interesting that you you mentioned those who, not necessarily deliberately, but they were naysayers. How did you stand up to that? And how do you continue to stand up to that because people's view of activism and their view of proactively taking steps no matter how small to make a change in the world is still for the majority I suppose maybe I'm being a bit unfair but it's it's based in the negativity of well what difference am I going to make therefore what difference are you going to make how do you manage that it's definitely extremely challenging. And it's something that I, I would wish we would prepare change makers, activists of all sorts better for, because it's an inevitable part of this work. And I remember at times being crestfallen. Why, why would someone do this? Why would someone, um, in French, we have this expression that is like, put sticks in your wheels, you know, like actively try to sabotage and block something that doesn't harm them in any way. And over time, I I learned to understand a little bit better where those different mechanisms come from. And there's different places, right? One is the, oh, this is how I was treated. Hence, you must also suffer the way I suffered, consciously or subconsciously, which is just pretty sad, you know, what some people had to go through and the fact that they hold on and try to replicate this reality just because they went through it. Then there's the the type of, of people who were told by so many different instances that they're the expert, they know they've worked themselves through to the top of whatever, you know, pyramid their specific sector is. And then when you show up with an idea that's different or that challenges a little bit the status quo or their way of, of thinking about it, you have a reaction that comes from that place, right? <laughs> There's also the cynicism, which you mentioned, people who think, oh, what difference does it make if I do this, if one person does this, um, we can never do it, which is another sad version of the first one. I tried and it didn't work. Like I know, 
who do you think you are as a young activist? We've been there, we've done that, right? So I think there's different places where where these types of blockages or naysayers can come from. And it has helped me to understand a little bit what is what is moving them because it's not typically personal, right? It's not even that they really want to thwart my effort. Sometimes they even think that they're redirecting me towards something that will work better, even though it's really patronizing and unhelpful from my perspective, right? And then there's also the times where I got really furious, like times where I was confronted with blatant sexism, right? Like I just told the other day someone the story that was the sustainability leadership conference. And I remember I was like 20, early 20s. And this man stood there at the front of everybody and, and spoke about how fracking was the sustainable energy source of the future and how safe it was. And you could almost call it renewable and whatever. And I was so shocked <laughs> and I, I had just studied this topic and I remember looking around and nobody was, you know, saying anything. Nobody was reacting. There was like a Q&A moment. Nobody said anything. And I stood up, you know, with like the pressure of being probably the youngest person in the room anyway, and a young woman. Right. And, and I stood up and I said my piece that it's not as safe as he just made it out to be and, and so on. And he, he used um, an attempt at public humiliation as a strategy to to just delegitimize the question or the comments, right? So he was just like, oh, here we go, another young, you know, idealist. <laughs> How cute, <laughs> kind of, right? In his tone, in his way of approaching the question and presented me as if I didn't understand scientific thought by which if something, there's never 100% security. So if it's 99%, then it is, right? So trying to delegitimize my thinking and painting me as this irrelevant young idealist, which this is just one example of something that happened to me countless times. And I think I just learned to be more like grow a little bit of tougher skin <laughs> and also not let myself be treated in this way. And for sure, not let myself be discouraged. Like this did not result in me thinking, oh, next time, maybe I'm not going to say anything because I might be treated in this way. Oh, no. <laughs> this results in me being like, okay, we have even more work to do. And I'll encourage even more people, whether they are young women or other people that are maybe underrepresented to speak up even more. It strengthens me in my purpose, I think, to some extent. So being the activist that you are, how have you moved into a space that is about being proactive and not only making real change, but making sustainable change? Since I started on this journey, for me, it was like instinctively clear that part of it is embodying the change I wish to see. And it took me a while to also to understand and kind of mitigate that with realizing we do live in broken systems. So we do live in systems where, for example, just to take one case, uh, beverages used to come in reusable glass containers that the companies had legally to take back, right? And at some point they realized, oh, there's this new material and there's plastic and we can make a much bigger margin if we don't have to deal with this logistics of glass anymore to begin with. And then there was a marketing team thinking, oh, but maybe people will have a problem with, you know, just throwing away things because this throwaway culture that now is so normalized is a pretty recent invention in our society, in our systems. And they came up with the concept of recycling. Oh, we'll just sell this concept of recycling and then people will feel good about themselves when they don't throw it out, but they recycle. Forgetting that it's just a complete shift of the responsibility from the companies onto the consumers and that before it used to be done in a completely different way. So this is these are things I learned um, over time with systems thinking, right? We're thinking in this complexity and how is the power distributed in the system? So 
I don't plead for being really harsh with ourselves, right? I, I very much argue for realizing that there is no way to be completely perfect on all of our values in totally broken systems and where like the odds are kind of stacked against behaving in a sustainable, regenerative, equitable way. And at the same time, I still very much believe in the power of the many. Uh, I've seen this this post recently was just, oh, it doesn't change anything if only I act, said 8 billion people. So there is also this dimension of, yeah, every choice that I make, every vote that I cast, everything that I buy or don't buy, um, like we were discussing before, is also a contribution. And I felt instinctively that change does start with myself. It doesn't start with blaming other people and thinking someone else is completely guilty of everything and it has nothing to do with me. So I think there's something really empowering also in that, in thinking, okay, where in my life right now can I take steps? And maybe this week I'll start thinking about where do my clothes come from? And maybe, you know, in a month's time, I'll I'll have switched that behavior in a way. And maybe next year I'll focus on what I feed myself and so on and so forth, right? So I think there's there's a space there for concrete, proactive change and impact that I think goes unseen and undervalued so often. <laughs> so that's in a way, I think one part of, um, of this answer. And then the other one is somehow I had the inherent belief that we can make a difference. So this is also something I'm often asked like, but why, like, why would you even, you know, try like so many people like inherently believe that it doesn't matter. And for some reason, and I cannot really pinpoint, you know, where it came from, Exactly. But I had the sense that what I do matters and what everyone does matters and we can make a difference if we choose to do so. And so there wasn't a doubt in a way in my in my activism, in my moving to trying to to make a change, because like I think that is like a prerequisite. You have to be convinced that it's actually possible to make a change. So I think the importance of hope and vision, you know, circling back to the topic of being an idealist. It's really interesting to me that it's always the people who try to postulate new visions and other ideals and a change are kind of labeled as idealists. But everything that we've been taught, you know, about how capitalism works, about how we must have an extractive economy, how we must, these are also ideals. That is also a very specific vision of the future that's been packaged in a way to make it palatable to the many, even though it doesn't really serve the many that well, as we both know, right? So I think kind of calling out that there are ideals and, and future visions behind any position, not just the new or the, you know, change-making ones, but also very much the ones we've been taught are mainstream. <laughs> and the question is just, can we look at the different options and the different future visions and the different ideals that they are and really make a choice for ourselves? Which one is the one that resonates with me the most, that I believe is worth living, that I would like to leave to my children or descendants or in general other people and the rest of nature. You've mentioned systems change. Can you explain to me what it is? <laughs> Controversial question. So to me, systems change can be understood uh, with a simple iceberg model, where if you look at any single challenge or issue, for example, we can take the textile situation, right? The amounts of textiles that end up on landfills that are even burned <laughs> because they don't sell in the cycles of production, the consequences for the rivers and the deforestation and the human suffering, all of those very visible 
symptoms, we would say, in a systems thinking context of a deeper issue. And we would then look under the water surface, so to speak, of the iceberg to ask ourselves, well, what are, you know, the policies, the rules, the structures um, that make these consequences a logical, yeah, just a logical consequence and something that follows if you have such a policy, then indeed it's likely that this happens. And for example, not internalizing the real cost of something, not protecting rivers and people, um, not holding companies based in the quote-unquote global north accountable to human rights violations if they're you know perpetrated abroad. All those things are policy structural elements that yeah that inevitably may lead to the consequences that we're seeing. And then on a deeper level, we, we would ask ourselves, what are, you know, the power dynamics, um, the relational intricacies that contribute to those policies being in, in place? So typically we would ask ourselves, well, who decided that this should be the policy? Who has the power to change these policies or these rules and is not doing it? And typically, yeah, we then start to find uh, systemic oppression topics such as the ones we've been touching upon before around gender, around ethnicity, and so on and so forth. And then on a deeper level, we, we would consider what is the paradigm? What is the fundamental mindset that is moving through this entire iceberg and legitimizing and contextualizing all of those decisions of all of the people involved in the system? And there we will typically find things like thinking we are separate from one another, thinking we are separate from nature and can control nature, uh, thinking that one type of person based on how they look or how they live or where they live is worth more than another person. And so systems change. I think fundamentally it's important to understand systems thinking. So the first thing we would do is look at the situation, look at a problem in a systemic way. So plastic in the ocean, we would not just take uh, the measure of cleaning up the oceans, even though that's important. We would ask ourselves, how can it be that plastic keeps ending up in the ocean? And what must we do further upstream, so to speak, of the problem, closer to the root cause, to avoid this in the first place? So this is what systems thinking leads to. And then systems change efforts specifically at the deepest level. Of course, they change the paradigm. So what would it look like, for example, a supply chain um, a world um, and how we clothe ourselves that is based on mutual respect, that is based on understanding that we are dependent and part of nature, that we are not separate and that we do not exploit other people that look different or live further away for, for our own gain. So what would yeah, a whole system, a whole textile industry that is based on those principles, on those paradigms look like? Systems change can take the shape of changing policy. It can take the shape of having different people in decision-making spaces, um, different people elected, different people on boards. It can look a myriad of different ways. Sometimes it's very drastic, like women get the right to vote, right? The very obvious, profound systems change. And sometimes it's much more subtle and it's public opinion that shifts over time. But yeah, this is, I think, the basic concept. So starting to look at the issues that we're facing systemically, trying to understand them more holistically than only the symptoms and fighting those, and trying to work together with different actors to change the root cause, to change the fundamental paradigm 
that is creating all of the problems that we're facing. You've given a very clear explanation there. Is it easy to practice? I wish. <laughs> no, uh, sadly not. Or in a way, in a way, yes. If you are okay to sit with complexity and with not knowing and with working towards things that you will not see the end result of. You know, this quote of like, we're planting seeds of trees under the shade of uh, which we will never sit. Why do a master's in social innovation? If you're already in that field of activism and systems change? Good question. I definitely think the the master's is, is very polyvalent. It offers different things to different people. For sure, there are people who, who you know, were part of my cohort that came more, for example, from a corporate background that learned a lot of the, you know, social innovation specific approaches and tools and techniques. But even for people who have been in this field for a while, I think there's tremendous value in experiencing a program like this one. In my personal case, it both gave me kind of confirmation of things that I either was assuming or felt they were this way, right? So as we say, good theory describes a real phenomenon, right? So it gave me confirmation, it gave me support, it gave me more language also around the things that I was um, that I was trying to do. It also challenged some of my assumptions, right? So it also opened for me where I had maybe more knowledge of say systems change, for example, than other people. I had much less knowledge of, you know, business planning from a social enterprise and the long view on, on this, on this field as to just say one example, right? So I think for people from different backgrounds, the program will be new and confirming, affirming or challenging in different parts. And I really was also looking for the exchange with people from different sectors. And I so cherished like the points of view, the knowledge, you know, things that I had blind spots in or, or just hadn't personally lived in a way that some of my colleagues have, for example, in a corporate career, right, which was so interesting and really, really valuable and led to very interesting discussions, both in the classroom and, you know, when we when we would gather outside of it. So I think exposure to the diversity of the cohort, the diversity of thought, the solid academic research, that's also maybe a, a type question a little bit. I, I am somebody that I do like to feel like I know what I'm talking about. I do like to know things in depth wherever possible. I'm not saying I haven't done you know, the, the naive mistake and acted too quickly and learned by error. I've done all of this as well. That's maybe another podcast in and of itself. Um, but I do appreciate having a bigger picture and kind of the yeah the academic information as well as the practical and practice oriented um, work. So that was that was one of the motivations for me, and it did open my you know my eyes to my interest actually in research as well. So it it led to me even considering doing a, a PhD as a possible next step. At the heart of it, what was it that you really enjoyed about that program? Uh, I so enjoyed coming together in Cambridge in the residentials. And I'm still a little bit heartbroken that we were the um, pandemic cohort. You know, we started in 2020. So we missed out, I think, on, yeah, three or something out of the five residentials or um, or however it was. 
So I still have hope that, you know, we managed to organize reunions and, and yeah, enjoy more even of what Cambridge has to offer. But just, I think, coming together in this, in this historic place, it's such a privilege, such a privilege. And to, you know, walk those halls and again, there have a bit the long view. I think this long view, this historic piece is very felt uh, in a place like Cambridge. It was also at times a little bit alienating, you know, the social structure and the the hierarchies of like the UK context as a Swiss person where we never had a monarchy, you know, like it's very, it's very different. Um, so it was also a little bit of a social experiment at times in, in that regard, the great people that have done great things, also less great people that have done less great things, right? But there's a legacy there and to tap into that legacy combined with coming together with other really motivated, inspired, and committed people who really want to see a change in the world and want to contribute personally. That combination of in the physical residentials was just unique and always yeah, very inspiring. I always came home with a renewed energy, a lack of sleep, but also renewed energy. <laughs> Would you recommend it to anybody else? Absolutely. I think it depends a little bit on where one is, right? It is a time commitment. And I would definitely advise if there is a way to plan that to really, you know, make sure that there is sufficient time to really invest. Because you can, you know, you can get through it and and really juggle and really do your best as I did. I mean, I found that halfway through that I had a burnout. So, you know, that's kind of my context, which had started, by the way, before the master's. So it was not caused by the master's, but just I was juggling a lot. And so I do feel like I could have gotten even more out of the program. So I think being sure that one is ready and willing to commit the time, I think is an important part of this really being worthwhile as an experience. And then also, what is what is my next step? Like, what am I potentially interested in going for? And I don't think there's a specific answer where I would be like, oh, then definitely don't do the master's. Like, I think, as I described before, it can be interesting for for anyone, for people who want to continue in their careers, who want to change their careers, who want to open their horizons, who want to launch an own project. Like there's really such a bandwidth of opportunities and, and insights. But just to have a bit of a sense, because it, the master's does leave a lot of opportunity to focus, right? So, for example, the topics of my essays, I was able to choose them according to my fields, to what's relevant to me. Um, so I think that helps to have a bit of a sense of what am I really interested in and what I, am I wishing to contribute to also with this, with this experience and this journey. That was Nora Wilhelm, graduate of the Masters in Social Innovation Programme, social innovator and an activist. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for our Masters programme by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.